Okay, good morning, everyone. I want to thank our sponsors this morning, Michael Kleinman. Oh, in honor of Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. That's so nice. <laughs> and grandmother's 89th birthday. Privileged to share the honor with grandmother. And Maurice and Eve Kaufman in commemoration of the earth side of her beloved father, Rabbi Max Benish Ben Chaim Dov. Thank you for your sponsorship. If you'd like to sponsor in the future, you can coordinate with our shul office. Appreciate everybody's flexibility to meet in here today. We're hosting uh, YU Alumni Yarchikala, 60 rabbis from across North America. For most of you who are snowbirds, the likelihood is your rabbi is in the other room. So feel free to try to find him after the, uh, after the class. As always, we'll do an overview of the Parsha, some of the major themes that run through our Parsha Truma, and then we will delve into specific psukim together. And with the beginning of Parsha's Truma, we transition to the second half of the book of Shemos. As we've discussed numerous times, Bereshus is about the birth of our family. All the family dynamics, trying to go from a dysfunctional family to a functional family, something we are continuing to struggle with until this very day. And by the close of Vayichi, at the end of Bereshus, we are a family. Family is reunited. The family is reconciled. We finally have a generation in Ephraim and Menashe of siblings without rivalry who get along. We're ready to be born as a people. First half of Shemos is the story of our birth as a people. And now we transition from a family to a people to being a people with a sacred mission. And that sacred mission was given to us at Har Sinai. We read two weeks ago and last week, Yisro and Mishpatim, the story of Nasev and Ishma. Then now we have found the ability to be a cohesive family, a functional family. We have emerged as a people. We're not just some secular political entity. We're not a random people, culture, ethnicity, or nation. We are a people with a mission, with a mandate. And that mission is the Torah HaKadosha. We stood at Sinai and God said, this is my blueprint for the world. I want you to live it. I want you to attract other people to it. I want you to transform the world through the values that are contained therein. But then we walked away from our Sinai. We had reached the mountain. Moshe was on top, but we were Ke'ilu on top of the mountain. It doesn't get better. There's no greater revelation then God speaking directly to us at Sinai. How do you leave that? How do you walk away? Where do you find the encouragement, the power to go live that mission and that mandate? That's the second half of Sefer Shmos. Truma. God says, I want you to build a tabernacle, a home, where we can continue the Har Sinai conversation. Where that rendezvous, that intimacy that connection, that meeting, was not a one-time event in history, expired, forgotten, moved on from, but it's something that continues, and it continues forever. It continued in the Mishkan as it wandered through the desert, continued with the Mishkan when it first came into Israel, it then was housed in the Beis HaMikdash, and after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Gemara Megillah tells us, God is now found in the Mikdash Ma'at, in the miniature temples, otherwise known as shuls around the world. You're here, we are in this building, because that conversation and that experience of Harsinai continues. V'shachanti b'socham. Parshish Truma is, don't think that revelation is only at Harsinai. We spoke, I think we spoke about, did we speak about in this group? No, it was another group. But why don't we visit Harsinai? 
No one knows where our Sinai is accurately. We don't go visit. There are no tours. There's no mission. There's no old woman selling red bendels at our Sinai. Our Sinai does not play a role in our lives. We've all been to the Kotel. Some of us have been on top of Harabayas, on top of the Temple Mount. And Rabbi Soloveitchik explained why. Because Har Sinai was God directed down towards us, whereas Har Habayas, Har Hamoriah, is us exerting effort, initiative, a relationship towards Hashem. Kedusha, sanctity that endures, is not when the divine temporarily visits. That's not a sanctity that endures, it's temporary, it's temporal. The sanctity that is permanent, that endures, is when the human being initiates the rendezvous, the connection. And that's Hara Moriah, that's Hara Bayes, that's the Mikdashe Ma'at. It's the miniature temples of shuls today where we initiate through tefillah, through davening, through learning, and so on and so forth. Rav Chaim Cohen, the great Chalban, who I've introduced you to, the milkman of Yerushalayim. I've shared before this until recently anonymous individual who was a simple clean-shaven milkman whom it was discovered was an incredible mystic in Talmud Chacham and since has been revealed and his Torahs have been published in his wonderful Sefer Tal Lechayim. He says the tradition from the Shlach HaKadosh. The Shlach says, the parashios that we read always correspond with the time of year in which we're reading them. There's a rhythm that is in sync a coordinated rhythm of the parsha with the month and time of year in which we're reading. Truma, we always read at the beginning of what month? What Rosh Chodesh did we just celebrate? Adar. What do Truma and Adar have in common? Wonders the Chalban. And he says, the name Adar stands for Aleph Dar. Aleph Elohim, the Aleph, the singular one God. Dar, dwells. Where does he dwell? Well, Parshish Truma tells us how to give God dira betachtonim, how to give God a place to live here on earth. Truma and Adar go together. Aleph, Dar. How is Adar the month in which we give God a place to dwell? Because Adar, Mishenichnas Adar, Marbin Besimcha, this is the month where we promote and increase and dwell and expand our joy and our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our happiness. Where does that come from? Shopping sprees at town center mall, overindulgence at lunch today. Where does that joy and satisfaction come from? It comes from Adar, Aleph Dar, when you feel Hashem in your life. When you feel your life is not the result of randomness and chance and happenstance, that you're not a piece of data, but that there is an omnipotent, infinite creator of the universe, who providentially, who is divinely looking over and looking after our lives. Even when we go through hard times, we can feel the simcha of knowing that there's a deeper meaning, that there's a reason. That somehow this is for good, even when I don't understand. And that's our mission in the month of Adar, and that's the mission of Parsha's Truma. is to find God even when He's hidden. Is v'shachanti b'socham, right? The core Pasuk of our Parsha. V'asuli mikdash, make for me a sanctuary. V'shachanti b'socham, I will dwell, not in it, I will dwell in them. And we've all heard... The whole notion we've all heard is that we give God a dwelling place not in a particular building, it's not an address, it's not a campus, 
It's in every single Jew. It's in every human being. When we promote and nourish the Tzelem Elohim in us, God finds expression in this world. We've given Him a place to dwell. We've taken Him from the realm of being hidden to being revealed when we are His angels. And people say, that's what it means to believe in. That's what it means to be committed or loyal to God. Adar is the story of Purim. You don't see Hashem's name in the Megillah. We all know that. Hashem's name never appears explicitly. It's the one book in the 24 books of Tanakh where God's name does not appear. And if you choose to read the Megillah absent God, if you want to see the story as a series of coincidences and happenstances, you can. You are entitled. The atheist or agnostic or disbeliever has every easy ability to read the story and say, it's just a series of coincidences. But what's our mission? It's called Megillah's Esther. You know why? Because the mission of Purim is to be Megala. Venistar. Megillah's Esther. Megillah means to reveal. Esther, Nistar means that which is hidden. Our job in reading Megillah's Esther is not to read it superficially, not to read it on the surface where there is no name of God, but our job is to read between the lines and between the words and to be Megillah's Esther, to be Megillah the Nistar, to reveal that which is hidden. And when we reveal that which is hidden, When we see God between the lines, behind the curtain, pulling the strings, whatever metaphor you want to use, when you see God in the picture, Adar. You've given the Aleph, Adar, you've given him a dwelling place here in this world. And Mishenichnas Adar, when you Aleph Dar, when you give God a dwelling place in this world, when you see him in your life, when you understand that everything that happens to you and all that surrounds you, is not chance or coincidence, but rather it is the will of the Almighty. There is no simcha greater than that. There's no satisfaction, there's no joy, there's no relief, there's no confidence. There is nothing greater than that. So, Shlach Kadosh says, that's why we read Parshish Truma, the beginning of Adar. It's not a coincidence, it's not chance. They always go together because the message, the theme of Truma is the theme of Adar. It's to give God a dwelling place down here on earth. That's what this Parsha is really all about. And you'll read the Parsha and you'll say, all the dimensions and all the materials and all of these details of a Mishkan that hasn't existed in thousands of years. And though we long for the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, who knows? What's the relevance to me? Why am I reading this? And so we have to know in our core that its messages are timely. That if we believe the Shachanti B'Socham is the prescription for how to give God expression in this world through us, then the themes and the values and the messages within the Kalim, within the utensils of the Mishkan, and the Mishkan itself are not reserved only for that time, but they are timeless. They continue to endure and they continue to be able to touch us Ad Hayom Azeh until this very day. I'll share with you words of the Rav. Bessalavetrik at the very end of our parsha, in the wonderful Rav Chumash, when the parsha ends, all the implements of the Mishkan for all of its labor. And the Rav comments as follows How must a religious couple furnish their home? How do you furnish your home? You go to IKEA or Macy's or I don't even know where you go to shop for furniture. Where? Rooms to, go. Rooms to go, the flea market, wherever you go. 
Carl's, I might as well plug everybody. So the Rav wonders, how does a religious couple furnish their home? And he says, the Mishkan that the children of Israel made in the desert as a house for God should serve as an example. In Parshish Truma, God commands to make the vessels, the ark, the table, the menorah. God also commanded to make the incense altar. But this item is not mentioned until Parshish Tetzavah. In Parshish Vayakel, all four vessels are mentioned together. However, the fact that the incense altar is not mentioned in Truma suggests that the character of this vessel is different from the other three. I'm already giving you a Dvar Torah for next week's Parsha, Tetzavah. Why is the Mizbeach HaKetorah not listed among the other utensils in our Parsha? Why is it listed among the priestly garments where it doesn't belong in next week's Parsha? Says the Rav. It appears the purpose of the building of the Mishkan was not merely to offer sacrifices, for this purpose, a simple altar would be sufficient. The beautiful building and the vessels within this building would be unnecessary. The main purpose behind the building of the Mishkan was to create a house for God. Ibn Ezra explains the only the three vessels mentioned in Truma, the Ark, the Aron, the Shulchan, the Menorah, were necessary to create such a house. Even without the incense altar, the sanctuary would have fulfilled the function of a house. So our parsha is not focused on a list of which kalim, which utensils would be utilized in the house. Instead, it's trying to give us a sense, a paradigm of what that house should look like and the values represented through the utensils contained therein. Precisely how to furnish a house for a guest can be derived from the incident of the Shunammite woman who told her husband in Malachim Bays, let's make a little room on the roof and set up for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp. So whenever he comes... He will have a place to stay. It's the Haftorah of Parshas Vayira. So Kodesh Baruch Hu is called in the book of the prophets, the Lord who dwells on the Kruvim. In the Medrash Tanchuma states, the divine throne was opposite the two Kruvim. Therefore one should look upon the Aron covering with the two cherubs as a chair and a bed, the menorah as the lamp, the table for the showbread as a table, four items of furniture needed to welcome guests. Now God himself had no need for the furniture. Right? We know that. Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't sit, doesn't stand, doesn't eat, doesn't recline. Hashem doesn't need the furniture. From the language of the Medrash, it seems that the command to build the temple was really a compromise, an accommodation on God's behalf. The Holy One is incorporeal. How is it possible there's a mitzvah to build Him a house? But humans have emotional needs, and among them is the need to feel God's immediacy. For this reason, God commands man to do what you need. God commanded to build Him a house to satisfy our need to feel as if He dwells within our close proximity. But I want to read you at the end. I'm skipping. If according to Ibn Ezra, the Mishkan can transform into a house, the private house of a Jew can transform into a Mishkan. We welcome God into our homes through establishing what the Shunammite woman mentioned. The bed, the table, the chair, the lamp. Homiletically, the bed represents family purity. The table represents keeping kosher, as well as the mitzvah of welcoming guests. The menorah represents the study of Torah. And in such a spiritually furnished home, one can hear the voice of God as in the tabernacle. I will arrange my meeting with you there and I will speak to you from atop the cover of the ark. In such a sanctuary, the Shekhinah indeed finds a place to dwell. So the Rav is describing that Parshish Truma is not archaic and out of date and irrelevant. The utensils that are described are giving us a blueprint the diagram for the utensils to be in our home. Not necessarily the literal dimensions or materials of the Aron, the Shulchan, the Menorah of the Mishkan, 
but what those utensils represented, the values that they sought to promote and to advance, are the furnishings of our home. If Hashem could make a mishkan and have it resemble a home, then our home should resemble a mishkan. A few more words of introduction, and then we'll delve into our psukim that we're going to look at today. <clears throat> the parasha begins, page 444, bless you, page 444 in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. The parasha begins, Moshe God speaks to Moshe, tell the Jewish people, li truma. Go collect for me a portion. This is the first appeal in Jewish history. God tells Moshe, I want you to stand in front of the Kla Yisrael, give out little cards with tabs, and I want you to do an appeal, I want you to do a campaign for the Mishkan. It's a very, very uncomfortable transition from last week. Anyone remember how Mishpatim ends? The iconic words at the end of Parshas Mishpatim that every school child knows remind us about the experience of receiving the Torah at Har Sinai. What two words are the iconic words that describe? Nasevinishma. Last week, we were just standing at Har Sinai. And God says, Can you do something for me? And we said, God, whatever it is, we'll do it. And then tell us about it. But we're all in. Wow, how romantic, how loving, how devoted. And what's the very next thing we read? Listen, I'm going to need some cash. (laughs) Do you have your checkbook on you? Listen, I need a donation. It's a campaign, there's an appeal. You talk about going from the height of spirituality to the mundane, Nasa Vinishma Harsinai Matan Torah too? Please turn down a tab and give it to one of the ushers when they walk through the aisle. <laughs> it's a bit anticlimactic to go from one to the other. So the Baal Shem Tov says that not only is it not strange, and not only is it not anticlimactic, it's absolutely necessary. Not necessary to have the funds to build a Mishkan, but necessary to concretize and capture what was being felt at that moment. Listen to the insight of the Baal Shem Tov. He says, when a person is spiritually awakened, when we have a moment that our neshama is alive, is aroused, we have to concretize the inspiration in a practical action or deed. You can't allow the feeling to be fleeting, to dissipate, to disappear. It has to turn into something tangible that will capture it in perpetuity. A physical manifestation of that experience. You ever went on a trip and it was incredible and it was amazing and you bought some tchotchke and the tchotchke is worthless but the tchotchke sits somewhere in your home because every time you look at it, it brings you back to the incredible family, time, fun, experience, memory. When you are spiritually awakened, you can't let that go. You have to do something concrete and physical and tangible and real to capture it so that it has a continued existence in perpetuity. And says the Baal Shem, that's what's going on. It wasn't just strategic. You know, the best time to do fundraising is when people are excited about something. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Moshe Leib. It's not just strategic. The best time to fundraise is 
when everyone's on fire? It's because when everyone's on fire, you got to find a way to capture it. So we read it backwards. Was God just tapping into the fact that we were on fire? It's the opposite. God saw we were on fire and said, Quick, I need to find a way to concretize this, to capture it. I know the yikhuli truma. Have them capture it by making a donation. Being moved and inspired at Matan Torah by Nasa Venishma is nice. It's impressive. But it's only meaningful and lasting when it's followed by a vehikuli truma. There's a professor, the great Nobel Prize winning economist and professor. My father studied under him at University of Chicago, Milton Friedman. Anyone ever hear study with Milton Friedman? So he had a simple suggestion. If you want to know what someone's priorities are, a person or an institution, if you want to know what drives them, what are their priorities, you know, many people eloquently describe their beliefs and their values and their principles and what they care about. They talk about what's most important to them. But said Friedman, forget what they say. You want to know what someone's priorities are? It's simple. Look at their budget. Look at how they spend their money. And when you see how someone spends their money, you know everything about them. How they prioritize their budget, their allocation, their money. Whether it's an institution or whether it's an individual, you know everything about them. So Hashem heard our priorities, Nasa Venishma. But it was just lip service until He said, V'yikhuli truma. Let's see if in your budget you will allocate. The Beis HaLevi, Yashaber Salavechik, for whom the Rav was named, the Beis HaLevi asks, Why does the parish begin, V'yikhuli truma? What should it say? V'yitnu li truma. V'yitnu means to give. V'yichuli means to take. So the Beis HaLevi says, when you buy something material, when you make a purchase, you may appreciate what you bought, or it may have been a complete waste. Sometimes the money we expend adds value, and sometimes we don't get anything in return for it. It's gone. You know, I, I unsubscribed my wife from all those deal-a-day emails because she couldn't help it. What do you mean I could get 40 pair of swim goggles for $1.50? I gotta get that. <laughs> and then the kids, before they can even get the goggles on their head, they snapped in half, they broke, they're garbage, they're nothing. So I had to unsubscribe her. You gotta stop getting these deals. So you buy something and you don't know till you have it. Is it gonna transform your life? Is it gonna be great? Is it gonna add value? Or is it a worthless nothing and the money you spent on it is gone forever? So the Beis HaLevi says, what's true when we spend money on ourselves is completely the opposite when we spend money on others. When we spend money on ourselves, we don't know whether it's money well spent or not until later. But when you spend money on another, by definition, it's money well spent. By definition, you're getting something good for it. It's adding value to their life and to your life. Pasuk in Tehillim, we say Memtes in a Shiva home. In death, you can't take it all. Very fitting and appropriate for a Shiva home. Right? It has been said, you'll never see a U-Haul attached to a hearse. <clears throat> you can't take it all. So the Malbim, you're all left in the image of the hearse with the U-Haul behind the Malbim asks, What do you mean, that you can't take it all with you in death? Can't take it all, but what? You can take some? Tachrichim don't have pockets. 
the kittel, which is what we wear at our wedding and at the Seder and we will be buried in, doesn't have pockets. Yom Kippur doesn't have pockets to tell us. It's not that you can't take it all. It's that you can't take anything. So says the Malbim, why does it say, And says the Malbim, because the answer is, there is something you take with you. What can you take with you? The tzedakah, the money you use to help others, that you take with you. So the money you spend for the house, the car, the vacation, the clothing, the, it's all gone. You can't take it with you. All those material items you can't take with you. But the money you spend to help others, that in fact you, can't, you can take with you. And there's a lot more to say about this, but I want to get on in our, in our parsha. I will, I will just add this because we're in the month of Adar. This notion. This notion that when you give to another, you gain more in return. And that's why the Beis Levi says, it doesn't say, V'yitnu truma, give to me, allocate for me. It says, V'yikhu, because it's paradoxical. V'yikhu truma. When you give, you're getting. I do a lot of fundraising. This is part of the, you know. When you give, you're getting in return. When you give, you're getting in return much more. One of our... Uh, Members is extremely generous, is in the real estate business, always says, the campuses, the institutions he's given to and transformed are the greatest in his portfolio of real estate. They mean much more to him than any profit-generating piece of real estate there is. Ah, it's not in your name, you don't own it, you can't get it back. Doesn't matter. That investment is the greatest return you know, that you know. So this notion has been now confirmed by science, there's a book called Happy Money, Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton. They summarize the research of the science of spending. And they show how spending money on other people actually increases your own happiness. I'm not going to tell you now the details of the study. It's fascinating. Some people were given money to go spend on themselves, and others were given money and said, go buy something for someone else. So you will intuitively say, give me a debit card, give me an open credit card, go to Town Center Mall, I'll show you what happiness looks like. <laughs> But in fact, the research found the opposite. That the people who were given money and said, go buy whatever you want for yourself, were less happy with the purchase as a result of the shopping experience than the people who were given money and told, go buy something for someone else. The yikuli, when you spend on someone else, you get something in return, which brings us to Hilchos Megillah Perik Bey's Halacha Yitzayim. The Rambam makes an incredible comment. The Rambam says, let's say I have limited funds and I can either buy more expensive wine for my Purim table, I could buy a greater cut of meat, a better delicacy for my, for my did I say Seder? My Purim Suda table, or I have more money to give to Matanos Levyona. What should I do? I could sink the money on my limited budget allocated for Purim into a more elaborate Purim Suda, or into more generous allocation for Matanos Levionim. Which should I do? What the Rambam answers won't surprise you, but why he answers it will shock you. The Rambam says, where should you put the money? Matanos Levionim. That doesn't surprise you. Of course the rabbi is going to say that. Give the money to the poor. It's a priority over the covenant wine or the uh, whatever, the more expensive, the petite castel, the more delicious wine. Give it to the poor person. That doesn't surprise you. But the Rambam says, why? Why should you give the money to Matanos Lavionim over to your own Purim Suda? And this part of the Rambam is shocking. 
He says, what's Purim all about? It's all about simcha. It's all about joy. It's all about your happiness. You know what's going to make you more happy? Tap more into the theme of Purim? Not a better bottle of wine or a nicer cut of meat, but knowing that you gave to someone else so that they could have a Purim su'uda too. That will give you more simcha. Don't do it for altruistic reasons. Don't do it because you're going to take care of the poor. Take care of yourself. And you know how to take care of yourself to have more simcha on Purim? Is by helping other people rather than investing it in yourself. So the Rambam actually codifies this, halacha lamaisa, when given the choice. Vilna Gon famously comments that the word vinasnu is a palindrome. It's spelled the, spelled the same forward and backwards. Because you get what you gave. The yikuli truma you're getting in return. Okay, let's get into the psukim. Overview of the parasha, built from me a sanctuary, put these vessels inside it. Here are the details of them and the dimensions. That's the overview of the parasha. Okay. <laughs> psukim that we're going to look at. Begin, we're going to start, we're going to study the shulchan. I think that's what we're up to. Page 448, the Shulchan, in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, where Perek Chavay, Pasuk Chaf Gimel, chapter 25, verse 23. V'yasisa Shulchan atzei shitim amasayim arko v'yamar achbo v'yamar v'chetzi komaso. Make a table out of atzei shitim, shitim wood. What is shitim wood? Acacia wood. What is acacia wood? It's actually a debate. The Medrash has different traditions. The likelihood is that acacia is a form, it's from the family of cedar, a type of cedar species. Take, make a table from that wood. It should be two cubits in length, a cubit in its width, a cubit in half in its height. With sipiso sozahav tahor, cover it. The core is wood. I want you to layer it with pure gold. Make a golden crown around the base of the table. So if you look at the picture that the art scroll conveniently has for us there, you'll see that the real table, the platform of the table is below. There's a crown around the circumference of the platform of the table. And what is above the table, we continue reading, you make a molding of a handbreadth around, a gold crown on the molding. Is there one crown or are they two? We'll see in a moment. Make four rings on the sides. Four rings of gold. Place them on the four corners on the four legs. The rings are opposite the molding to hold the poles that will go in order to enable you to carry the shulchan. Levatim levadim laseis a shulchan. Vasis is a badim atzei shitim. The poles, the staves are also made out of shitim, acacia wood. Vitzipiso samzav. They too are layered with gold. Vinisabam is a shulchan, and they give you the leverage. They rest on the shoulder in order to be able to carry the shulchan. Vasis sekaro savachaposavik sosavik nakiosav asher yisach bahein. And now make their dishes. What does it mean? The dishes. There were 12 utensils that were the shape that the dough was put in. The bread would take the shape of those 12 utensils and spoons and the tubes 
that if you go back and look at the picture, you see above the platform of the table was this tubin. Right? If you're in the catering business, you know these as sheet racks. Right? You have all the food plated, sits on sheets, and then you have the rack so that you could wheel that whole cart and serve. So the shulchan in the Mishkan, Lahavdil, was a shulchan. It had the legs and the platform on top. And above it was the tubing, was the shelving where the 12 loaves of the showbread would sit in the utensils within there. These were these tubings. The pillars, they're covered. They're also made of pure gold. There was always lechem upon him on there. Lechem upon him, the 12 loaves were baked every Friday, replaced every Shabbos. The Gemara describes the mechanism through which the loaves were withdrawn while the new ones were placed on in order to fulfill this mission of Tamid. They had to be on there continuously, contiguously. They were always on there. So that's the section of the Shulchan. It tells us the dimensions. It tells us the material. And it describes exactly the way it's made. It also tells us its purpose. Its purpose was to hold the 12 Lechem Aponim, Tamid, to be able to hold and to house these showbreads permanently. Acacia wood. These Lechem, the Atzei uh, Shitim. The Medrash in Shmos Rabbah Lamed Gimel says something very interesting. The Medrash says, the world was not worthy of using cedar trees. They were created only for the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. Says the Medrash, really the world would have been better without cedar trees. The only reason they were created was for the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. So what does that mean? It is used throughout the Mishkan. This acacia wood, according to the Medrash Tanchuma, Shittim tree is one of the 24 species of cedar. So really these Shittim trees, we would have been better off, the world didn't need them, but they were created just for the Mishkan and for the Beis HaMikdash. Why did the world not need them? And why did God make an exception for the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash? What's going on here? So the Sefer Menachem Tzion, I'm very fond of quoting lately, Rav Menachem Ben Tzion Zaks, the son-in-law of the Harzir, Tzir, Pesach Frank, he was a Rav in Chicago. In the Sefer Menachem Tzion al Chumash, quotes the Gemara and Tainus. Gemara and Tainus, Tavchof says, a person should always be soft as a reed and not rigid like a cedar. The Gemara is employing the symbol of a cedar tree as the symbol of inflexibility, of rigidity, of obstinacy, of stubbornness. The cedar is rigid, it's not flexible. It should be like a reed. Baruch Hashem, we haven't had a hurricane in a long time. We flirted with one recently. But Bli'ai and Hara, Baruch Hashem, we haven't had one in a long time. But those who are living here after hurricanes, remember that when you go for that walk, which everyone goes for after they've been confined in their home for several days, and there's no electricity, so you try to get some fresh air. When you go for that walk, what do you notice right away? The palm trees are all still standing. And the, the ficus trees are all on their side. Why? There's two lessons, powerful lessons. One is, palm tree has very deep roots, and the palm tree is very flexible. So when the winds come, Palm trees flexible, can withstand them. Whereas the other trees have very shallow roots, right? When you see those other trees on their side, you also see the whole network of the roots 
They were very shallow. They never went deep. They don't have deep roots and they're very, very rigid. And the lesson is this Gemara and Tainus. Be like a palm tree, like a reed. Be flexible. Don't be so rigid in life. Rigid people in life have broken relationships, have struggles to find happiness. Be a little flexible. Don't be so rigid. And make sure your roots run deep. Have deep roots that can nourish your tree. So the Gemara Tainus says... When it tries to draw a symbol of rigidity, what is an inflexible tree? It's the cedar tree. And says the Menachem Sion, that's what the Medrash means. God was saying the world was not worthy of cedar trees means that this quality of unyielding stubbornness should in theory never have been brought to the world. For us to get along and to work peacefully, to make room for one another, to yield to one another, to allow for the imperfections of one another, we need to be flexible. And the world would be much better off if there were no cedar trees. We don't need that rigidity. It's hard to operate and live in a world of rigid people and rigid trees. If every person consistently insists on achieving their goals and conducting the affairs as they see fit, they have no interest in accommodating other people. The world can't advance. The world would have been better off without the cedar tree and what it represents. But there's one exception. God did enable a world with a cedar tree. For what purpose? Only the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. And says of Menachem ben Zion Zaks, when it comes to the area of religious principles, then unyielding obstinacy is a virtue. A person has to be prepared to yield to others. I'm not saying we should be religiously intolerant or judgmental. That's not what I or he are saying at all. But I'm saying in our own personal life, when we're feeling that peer pressure to be accommodating and flexible, to negotiate with our religious values and beliefs, to accommodate and conform to the ways of the times, that's when it's important to be a cedar tree. The Medrash says, the world would have been better off without rigidity, except Hashem needed it for the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. When the world is saying, conform, be flexible, bend, be like us, that's when you have to be strong and obstinate, stubborn and flexible when it advances the world of the Beis HaMikdash. There's an interesting book. I didn't read it, but I did see it referenced. It's written by Richard Weisberg. It's called In Praise of Intransigence. In Praise of Intransigence, The Perils of Flexibility. It's the name of the book. And to tell you what it's all about, he says, In our times of too much flexibility, intransience reminds us of our duty to hold on to what's right. It's now in, it's vogue to be flexible. Anyone can do anything, be anything, see themselves as anything, talk anything, wear anything, do anything, go anything. It's just a world of flexibility. Whatever you want. There are no boundaries. There are no rules. It's a world <coughs> of flexibility. And in a world of flexibility, we need some intransigence. We need some stubbornness. We need some atzei shitim. We need some cedar wood to have principled living. To have values-based living. Okay, let's go into the Mephorshim. <clears throat> says the Sfornam right we described we make a table here are the dimensions it has a molding and on top of the molding it has a crown and it sounds from the verses like there are two crowns says the Sfornam 
After we just discussed the details, the dimensions, the materials of the Aron, which was the place from which the Shechina, the Divine Countenance emanated, it was the meeting place. What did the Aron house? The Luchos. The Luchos Habris, the Aron Habris. It was the place that symbolized our covenant, our commitment. So after the Aron, from which God's divine countenance emanates, Tziva al Shulchan Menorah, Kimin Hagam, Next comes the Shulchan and the Menorah. Kiin Yana Shunamis, like the Rav alluded to, takes us to Malachim Beis, the story of the Shunayisha Shunamis. Right? She instructed what does a proper home have? What are the furnishings? A bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. The Aron stands for Keser Torah. The Shulchan corresponds with Keser Malchus, the crown of monarchy. As the Gemara Yuma says, What is the mission and mandate of a king, of the monarchy, of royalty? It's twofold. The king has two missions. Number one, to maintain law and order, to provide justice, to care for the citizens of the country from inside. And number two, to protect the country from the outside. Law and order internally, security externally. It's not a, it's not a what do you call it, speech, a... Uh, I'm not running for office. I'm telling you what the Sforno says. The king government's job is to preserve law and order internally and protect externally. So Husmu B'Shulchan Beis Ksorim says the Sforno, that's why the Shulchan had in fact two crowns. Echad Mehem L'Shulchan Atzmo. One crown was on the table itself. Hamora Parnasas HaMedina V'Sidur Inyana V'Abez L'Mezgeres so one crown was on the table and one crown was on the molding. Why? The crown on the table corresponds with the need to sustain, to nourish, to provide for the members of the country. The second crown, the misgeris, comes from the word soger, to close off, to build a crown and to make other people pay for it. To make sure that no one comes from the outside into the, into the utensil. So since the shulchan corresponds with Kesar Malchus, says the Svarno, the two crowns correspond with the two missions or job obligations of the king, of the leader, internally and externally. the Svarno. Look at the Kleyakar. Kleyakar says the shulchan, the table, is covered in... Gold. The table corresponds today. You know, the Gemara says, now that we don't have Kalim of the Mishkan, we lack a base on Mikdash. How do we achieve Kapara? How do we achieve atonement? How do we draw close to the Almighty? Through what? And the Gemara says, like what the Rav was alluding to also, through the utensils in our own home, through our Shulchan. The shulchan of the mizbeach corresponds to the shulchan in our own home. 
Rabbeinu Bachia, not this one the Kliyakar is quoting, another Rabbeinu Bachia. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again because I was at a wedding the other night and someone told me, in an attempt to compliment me, they basically told me that over the last 17 years, there's only two things I remember you saying. Anyway, and one of them, one of them was a, uh, this Rabbeinu Bachia. Rabbeinu Bachia quotes a tradition. Rabbeinu Bachia lived in Spain, medieval times. He quotes a tradition. He says, because our table, our dining room table, corresponds with the shulchan of the Mishkan, it's supposed to, in its use, the type of conversations we have, the guests that we hope, and so, host, and so on. So Rabbeinu Bachia quotes a tradition that they used to take the dining room table when a person died, they would disassemble it, and they would turn the material of the table into the coffin in which the person would be buried. They would come to Shamayim, writes Rabbeinu Bachia very descriptively. They would come to the heavens and they said the dining room table would accompany them and testify on their behalf. The Divrei Torah, the Zmiros, the Shabbos guests, the parlor meetings, the checks that were written there. The dining room table would... So Rabbeinu Bachia quotes this and you think it's obscure. I will tell you as recently as the Rogachevergon. The great Ragachover, the Rebbe of Rabbi Tites from Elizabeth, New Jersey, the Ragachover was buried in his dining room table. This tradition of the Shulchan, that we take the material of our Shulchan, and that is what we're buried in, as recently as the Ragachover gone was buried in it. You should be very careful. Ask yourself, ask yourself, would you want your dining room table to be able to speak? If your dining room table could speak, what would it say? What would the rabbi hear that it said about him? What would the dining room table, what would the dining room table say? So the Kliyakar quotes a different Rabbeinu Bachia here. Rabbeinu Bachia says, so zahav tahor, that the, the shulchan was layered with gold. So gold, zahav, is an acronym referencing birchas hamazon, the benching that we say at the table. The zayin, birchas hazon. Hey, hainu birchas haaretz. Beis birchas bonei Yerushalayim. V'yasisel ozer zahav saviv. We make a crown around it. B'chol ma'ashe yazmin lo Hashem le'achom yishochan gavoa yidme benavsha kilu hu melech ba'atarasha atru lamidas ha'estapkos. When you sit around your table, just like the shulchan and the mishkan had a crown, your dining room table has a crown. We say, my dining room table, I inherited it from my great-grandparents. It's cracking and moldy and stained and falling apart. I barely have anything to eat on it. I'm sitting on folding chairs. I'm supposed to feel like my dining room table has the zer zahav, the crown, like the shulchan. Says the Kliyakar, yes. The notion of histapkus, that you have must speak, that you have enough. One should feel like a king at their table. You should feel like a king. Not in an arrogant sense. Not in an ostentatious sense. You should feel like a king that you know what? I'm royalty. I have exactly what I need. I have everything that I could possibly want. Don't lust after, don't be jealous of the table of kings. Your table is greater than theirs. And your crown is greater than their crown. Because if your table is a place that promotes Torah and Torah values and you sing Zmiros and you host guests and you spend quality time with family and so on, then your table is greater than the table of kings, then you are greater than a king and that's why you deserve a crown at your table as well. Kliyakar continues with this theme. V'yasis alom 
that there's a molding. Why does the table have a molding? A molding in Hebrew is called a misgeres. The root of the word misgeres is samach gimel resh, like lisgor. If I tell you there's a draft in here, do you mind lisgor esadelas? Would you mind closing the door? So why should the shulchan have a molding that's called a closing, a misgeres, lisgor? Because you should leave your temptation outside. There should be boundaries. The table should have not be over. If you are can succeed in having a molding, in closing in and having boundaries in your life, why should you have a crown on the molding? If the whole goal of the molding is to create a sense of boundary, and the answer says the Kliyakar so beautifully is, one who lives with boundaries is royalty. It's not the lack of boundaries, the freedom to do anything you want that makes you royalty. It's living within the boundaries that makes you royalty. And that's why the molding itself had its own crowd. Somebody who has no boundaries and lives freely and liberally and does whatever they want, they may think they're a king, but they're a pauper. They're a poor person. And that's why it's called the Zer Zahav. The crown is called the Zer. Zacha Nasalo Zer Vekeser. If you merit, it serves for you as a crown. Lo Zacha, you don't merit, you don't respect the boundaries. Nasa Zar Venachri. That same Zion Resh can be a Zer, a crown, can be a stranger. So it depends on your attitude towards your, towards your table. <clears throat> We'll do one last Kliyakar. Kliyakar here is beautiful on this section of the parsha. Kliyakar says that the round rings, thank you, that were on the side of the shulchan through which the poles ran to be able to carry it. Why are they covered in gold too? Just like the rings are round, so too we have to know economic cycles are round. And people's fortune are round. Those who were rich yesterday are poor today. Those who are poor today could discover a fortune tomorrow. And no one is never, ever entirely secure. The world works in cycles like the ring on the shulchan. So if your table is empty today, don't despair. Like the ring on the side of the shulchan, the cycle could bring you great wealth. And if you have great wealth today, don't be complacent and assume it will always be there. Don't be arrogant. Like the ring, like the roundness, know that the world turns and it can disappear tomorrow as well. We're out of time, but you got a small sense that the kalim are not archaic, arcane, they're not outdated, but the themes of these kalim in our parsha are the very description of the themes that should inform and inspire the furnishings, the lifestyle, the homes that we build as well. Have a wonderful day, everybody.